Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Before we begin, we want to let you know a bit more about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has digestible courses in topics from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to stuff like quantum computing. In today's episode, we're finding out whether advanced alien civilizations could avoid cosmic catastrophes by moving their entire solar systems. If you want to know more about the subject of planetary science and stellar physics, Brilliant series on applied science includes a fantastic course on astronomy, unlocking cosmic wonders from star life cycles to the fate of the universe. For explainers on the Goldilocks zone, exoplanets and stellar evolution, Brilliant has you covered. So to put your spare time to good use and hugely improve your critical thinking skills, go to brilliant.org slash new scientist and sign up for free. And the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Again, that address is brilliant.org slash new scientist. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential guide to the week's happenings in science. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. This week, pod regular Kat Delange is our co-host. Hey, Kat. Hi. Yep, I'm filling in for Val today and joining us this week is New Scientist Chief Reporter Adam Vaughan. Hi, Adam. Greetings. Coming up on the show, we've got an amazing story about sitting down. You know how sitting is supposed to be the new smoking? Well, new research is challenging that. After all, we did evolve to sit on our asses. <laughs> uh, we're also looking at the introduction of Europe's largest land mammal to the UK, the radical attempt to re-engineer the world's crop plants to make them more efficient in the face of climate change. And we have an absolutely extraordinary idea about how to move your entire solar system in the face of a cosmic threat like a supernova. But first, pandemic news. We spoke last week about the second wave, and this week there's new modelling that suggests in a bad winter we could get a second wave leading to 120,000 deaths in UK hospitals. That's a worst-case scenario that makes lots of assumptions, like, you know, people behaving as though the coronavirus was no longer a threat, uh, which bumps the R number up. And remember, the R number is the average number of people one person with the virus goes on to infect. It's currently still quite high. It's about 0.7 to 0.9. Uh, but there's a study just out showing that R got down to 0.57 in May when we had the strong lockdown. Well, in this worst case scenario, the R number goes up to 1.7 in September. If this is combined with an unusually cold winter and a flu epidemic, that could mean around 120,000 COVID-related hospital deaths to be recorded over the winter. That's an estimate, and the range is between 24,500 and 251,000 deaths, according to the scientists behind this new report. So for context, we've now had 45,000 COVID deaths in the UK, and remember that the chief scientific officer said in March that keeping the death toll under 20,000 would be a good outcome. Uh, worldwide, we've had more than 13 million confirmed infections and over 570,000 deaths. So you mentioned flu, cat, and the report stresses that it's going to be vital to limit the impact of seasonal flu. 
Yeah, and that's because we don't know yet how COVID-19 will interact with flu. So there has to be an adequate supply of the flu vaccine in the autumn. And we also need to scale up test, trace and isolate programmes to restrict the spread of coronavirus. And as well as COVID testing, we should start flu testing so people know which virus they have and they can get the right care. And what else can we do to get on top of this? So the report says we should try and make use of facilities now that have been made available during the coronavirus outbreak. So things like the new Nightingale hospitals and use those to clear the backlog of routine and elective procedures that have accumulated since the spring. And we should also prioritise those at greatest risk of severe illness and death, including people who are black, Asian and minority ethnic and those who live in crowded housing. And it's really vital to get that R number as low as possible, isn't it? Here's, yeah, and the study says that if we successfully limit the R number to, say, 1.1, we expect just 1,300 hospital deaths between September and June of next year. And Adam, you've been looking into some of the knock-on effects of the crisis. Yeah, the seed of this was, uh, I started, started a couple of months ago when I was reporting on the effects of the pandemic in sort of low-income countries. And I was quite surprised by several people telling me what they were worried about most was potentially the impact on other epidemics not on uh, COVID-19 itself and that that's um sort of spurred this recent story I've done which um there was one study in that an analysis analysis that found that um in terms of the effects on healthcare for tuberculosis malaria and HIV we could end up with deaths from those of an order of magnitude similar to those from COVID-19 itself in some parts of the world and where those diseases are most prevalent Right, that and that's because the healthcare systems there are just totally overwhelmed by COVID. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a really big issue. The it's partly the healthcare uh, systems themselves that support though you know support those other epidemics. Um, and and in a, you know in a worst case scenario, the malaria deaths ended up thirty six percent up over the next five years. I think in particular, net campaigns are affected. That was the big thing there in South Saharan African countries um, where the disease is most prevalent. It's slightly different for the others. So with you know, TB, it was, the main thing is diagnosis is not happening. So it could go up there by fifth there as new cases go undetected. And with HIV, it was it's really about the the drugs that keep you know keep that keep people well on HIV. Um it, the, the supply chains to those being disrupted and just generally the access to them being disrupted and that could see deaths from HIV up by tenth. Um, I mean, the team who did the research, they, they don't give the absolute figures on what that means in terms of number of people, but you, you only have to really extrapolate from the numbers of deaths from those three each year to see that this could be hundreds of thousands of extra deaths annually. Right. And as you've, you've kind of just intimated, there's different reasons for the disruptions in, in each different disease. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's it really um it really depends on each one. So, you know, in the case, some cases... I heard of drugs stuck in ports and, you know, there was one NGO that like flew, uh, flew, chartered a plane to fly, you know, HIV drugs in um, themselves. Um, there's disruption to the supply chains from malaria nets. I was hearing that sort of as long ago as about three months ago. So I'm sure that's then there's reports that's still ongoing. Uh, and then also there's fi- issues around financing. Um, one of the biggest sort of funders of all this stuff, uh, the treatment of these services, the Global Fund, one of its recent surveys is in June found 85% of the HIV programs it funds had seen disruption to delivering their services. And there were similar figures for TB, 78%, and for malaria, 73%. So these are already some of the biggest 
killing diseases on the planet, aren't they? Yeah, they, I mean, you know, in, in the developed world, largely we, we forget about these quite often, unfortunately. But the, you know, they mm. are they are huge killers. TBs, four thousand people daily. So any sort of you know reduction in the number of people being found with that is a big concern. Um, one, you know, TB. There was another study just last month that found you know without any sort of mitigation, you could end up with an extra two hundred thousand deaths from that uh, between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty four across three of the sort of countries that are affected quite heavily by that, which are China, India and South Africa. Yeah. When when you put the numbers of deaths for TB into a daily figure like that, it you know, four thousand daily is unbelievable. It's horrendous. Oh, it's 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 it's, it's shocking. I mean I, I'm I'm I must confess I didn't even know it was that high. Um I I'd, I'd forgot it's been a while since I'd covered it and um, I mean it come but I guess the interesting thing is, you know, it's there is a sort of common thread thread across all three of those other epidemics and that's also that people aren't going to healthcare facilities because they're scared of COVID-19 you know and also they're you know in some places they're scared of overwhelming the health system because they've been warned not you know warned that there might not be enough capacity. Um, And Kat turning to the mental health aspects of this you've been talking to a psychologist at the University of Oxford who studies anxiety disorders in children and young people. Yes this is Kathy Creswell and um, I've been hearing a lot about children being much more emotional and um, having a lot of tantrums since lockdown. Um, So I spoke to Kathy about this and she and her team have been surveying thousands of families to find out how they're affected by the pandemic. And um, the first findings that compare the beginning of lockdown to how things are now have just come out. Yeah, she could have uh, surveyed my family, actually. I've been experiencing firsthand how, uh, you know, some children are getting more emotional and disobedient. So, yeah, I've got a stake in this. What's the outcome? Yeah, me too. Um, well, we go we go into all of this in the mag, but basically the survey found that families are unsurprisingly under a great deal of stress and parents were really struggling with balancing work and childcare. And um, the most common concern that they were reporting was about their children's emotional well-being. So that was the initial survey that took place early on in lockdown. And now she's been able to compare that to what's going on. You know, in June, she looked at the data again and found that the worst affected were the younger kids. And so they had increases in behavioural problems, emotional symptoms, and were really struggling with kind of attention and impulsivity problems as well. So that's primary school age kids, so four to ten. Yeah, that's so that kind of explains what I've been seeing. Yeah, and interestingly, for secondary school Aged children, so that's 11 to 16, based on what their parents were reporting, they actually saw a reduction in emotional problems and no change in behavioural problems. So it sounds like secondary school students actually are having a, a bit of a positive mental health boost by not going to school. Right. And, and how do they explain those differences between primary and secondary school children? I mean, when you think about it, there's some quite straightforward explanations. So younger children will just require so much more adult input. So the majority of adults in the sample, they're trying to work and look after kids at the same time. And that's going to be much harder with younger kids. And the researchers suggest that it's easier, obviously, for adolescents and and older children to connect with their peers electronically, playing computer games or, you know, on FaceTime. But for younger kids doing Zoom chats, that's just not how they would normally interact. Yeah. So uh, how does it manifest the problems that we've been seeing? So the emo- the kind of emotional symptoms that they have been seeing are being tearful, being clingy, being very sad and worried. Um, mm. And then on the behavioural side, 
a lot of disobedience and tantrums, which yeah. can be really hard for parents when you're already trying to cope with so much. But, you know, everyone that the psychologists speak to say that this sounds like a very familiar problem as well. So, you know, if the findings do nothing else but help to normalise people's experience, hopefully that that will help just so parents don't feel like they're doing a terrible job or that their children are a nightmare. But actually, it's just a really hard situation. <laughs> that's our sci-fi alert. Rowan, this usually means we're reporting something in the real world that's already been in science fiction. What is it this week? So imagine you're an advanced alien civilization with vast engineering powers and you find that a star nearby is going to go supernova. Uh, and this is a, a real thing, you know. We know that the star Betelgeuse, which is quite close to us, that that's gonna that's gonna blow up in a few billion years. So, what would you do? I'd probably hop in my spaceship and go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, well, you could do that, but instead of doing that, you could, you know, move your entire solar system by building a star tug and dragging your star to a new location. Um, this is an idea dreamed up by a researcher at Yale University, which um, our reporter Johnny O'Callaghan reports in the mag this week. Um, apparently, it would be a good way for super advanced civilizations to avoid these kind of cosmic disasters like supernovas. OK, but how do we actually do this? Well, if you assume the star is the, about the same as our sun, you'd need to build a structure that's about a fifth the mass of our moon, uh, put it about 10,000 kilometres from the star and fit it with thrusters, and the gravitational pull of this object, although it's quite small, you could drag the star towards it and slowly accelerate it away. Um, and the estimate is that the star, the star tug could drag the star at 0.1% the speed of light in about 5,000 years and about 10% the speed of light in, in 38 million years. And basically drag the star and all the planets in the system along with it. OK, I just don't even know where to start with this. So how do you build something so massive that's able to tolerate the heat of a star at 10,000 kilometres? Well, Kat, you know, those are just mere details that the advanced alien civilization will have, you know, totally figured out. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I've been reading too much uh, science fiction by Chinese uh, <laughs> authors, but yeah, I'm also thinking, you know, like, let's move the planet the aliens live on or just, you know, as... As Kat says, just jump on a spaceship and head off somewhere else. Isn't that better and easier? Well, it might be, but they might be, you know, they might be attached to their home system and want to save it. Um, but what's also really cool about this is that the star tug uses the star itself as the source of fuel for its fusion engines. So you very gradually reduce the mass of the star over time. And we know that that prolongs the life of a star because stars with lower mass burn more slowly and live for longer. So basically, you use the star tug to go on a, a grand tour of the galaxy, stopping off at new worlds to settle on them along the way. Um, so you've got this ultimately sustainable way of driving around. It's better than building a, a civilization scale starship. And you have essentially infinite resources with you. That's pre pretty clever. And so <laughs> if aliens are doing these things, uh, might we be able to see them doing it? Well, you know, apparently we could look for them. There's a possible hint of something odd in some of the stars that we see because most stars rotate around the galaxy in the same direction but some don't you know maybe there's something weird going on with the star tug in those stars and the sci-fi link yeah i shouldn't be surprised anymore but almost everything has already been written about in science fiction uh, several books have featured this kind of star moving technology but i'm going to highlight olaf stapledon's 1937 novel star maker 
Uh, and that has aliens harnessing stars to drive them around the galaxy. But, uh, you know, it goes a bit wrong for them because it turns out the stars are life forms with consciousnesses of their own. And, you know, the stars get a bit upset about being dragged around. <laughs> Time Out, we want to tell you about a live online event on Thursday the 23rd of July. It's called The Art of Statistics. It's been said that we live in a post-truth society, and if that's the case, it's vital we understand how to communicate statistics and scientific uncertainty. Yep, it's a live talk by the renowned statistician David Spiegelhalter. He's going to talk about the challenges of clear communication during the COVID-19 outbreak, and about the wider question, can we communicate deeper uncertainty about facts, numbers or scientific hypotheses without losing trust and credibility. It's a live online event on Thursday the 23rd of July and you can get an early bird discount now. Check out newscientist.com slash events for more details. Now, what about this research all about sitting on your ass? I've been, I've been keenly anticipating hearing some vindicating news about this. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've been doing an awful lot of sitting down at the moment since lockdown. And we all know that sitting is meant to be really bad for us. Yeah, it's the new smoking. Sitting is the new smoking, isn't it, we're told. Um, sitting for hours at a time is supposed to be linked with all sorts of poor health outcomes. Yeah, so perhaps the strongest evidence for this came from a Lancet paper in 2012. And that suggested a link between health problems like heart disease, diabetes and cancer and sitting down for long periods of time. And so the paper concluded that prolonged sitting or prolonged periods of inactivity killed over 5 million people each year globally. And that's where you get this sitting is the new smoking headline from. But the cover story in the magazine this week questions a lot of the assumptions that we have about why it's so bad to, to be inactive. Right. And this is because anthropologists have been working with hunter-gatherers. Um, so what have they learned about what that tells us about our sedentary lifestyles? So it's written by two scientists, Herman Ponzer and David Reichlin. And we've written quite a lot before about their work. They study hunter-gatherers and they try to understand better how we evolved to be active and how different our current lifestyles are to how they used to be. So they were out with the Hadza hunter-gatherer community in Tanzania about 10 years ago and they noticed that the Hadza men and women really loved sitting in the chairs that they brought with them to their research station. And then they realised that even though the Hadza have loads of really sophisticated tools and homes, they've never invented anything like a chair. As the writers say, there are no chairs in Hadza land. Right. So that seems pretty clear cut. Uh, we spent much of our evolutionary history as hunter gatherers. Um, so we were very active or we were very active. And now we pay the price by sitting down all the time. Well, you might think so. But actually, at the heart of this story is a real mystery because it doesn't really make sense that sitting should be bad for us. If you think about the survival of the fittest, any adaptations that help us to conserve energy should be favoured. And loads of animals spend lots of time using very little energy altogether. So just think about hibernating mammals. Um, they don't get heart disease as a result of uh, hunkering down for the winter. Right. Bears and bats hibernate and many other mammals, including apes, spend long periods each day completely inactive, but they don't get those diseases. Um, so what's going on? Well, so the Lancet paper had controlled for other lifestyle factors like diet and still found that sitting was the thing that caused the problems. 
And there is some quite interesting older research as well that looked at bus drivers and compared them to bus conductors going up and down the stairs on double-decker buses. And um, they found that the bus drivers had a lot more um, health problems than the conductors. So they thought it was all about doing exercise and that led to the birth of the physical fitness movement. But we've come to realise that it's not about being sedentary versus taking exercise. The bad stuff happens because when you sit, you let your muscles be inactive and this causes a build-up of harmful fats in your blood. Just hearing that has instantly made me sit up straight while, while, <laughs> while you're talking. Yeah, get into a squatting position. Yeah. So what um, Ponza and Reichlin did was they went to monitor a bunch of Hadza men and women and they just covered them in accelerometers. They wired them up with MEG sensors to detect their muscle activity and they just followed them around. They kind of stalked them in their daily life. And the results were really surprising. So even though they do spend obviously a lot of time being very active. Even these hunter-gatherer communities, they sit for about 10 hours a day. And that is the same as the average person in the US. And yet they're not plagued by these cardiovascular diseases and, and diabetes. So what what is going on? So from all this monitoring, they found out that the trick isn't the amount of time you sit, it's the way that you do it. And Hadza men and women, much like a lot of Asian societies actually, spend a lot of time squatting and kneeling. And these more active sitting positions require your muscles to work a lot harder. And actually, some of these seated positions are are as good as standing up um, and could even be classified as light exercise. So can we look forward to like a movement towards having squatting desks instead of standing desks? Yeah, potentially. So what's going on is that when our muscles are active, we produce an enzyme called lipoprotein lipase. And this helps to provide fuel to our working muscles. But it also helps to remove these harmful fats called triglycerides from our blood. It's like a triglyceride vacuum cleaner. And these kind of postures like kneeling and squatting activate muscles in our legs and our core. And that's and that's better than, you know, going for a run to get the vacuum cleaner working. Yeah, it, it turns out that you can't just undo the effects of lots of sitting by then going and do doing lots of exercise. You can't sit all day and then go for a long run and you're fine. But what can help is breaking up long periods of sitting with a bit of light activity. So get up, move around a bit, um, or even better, do like the Hadza and avoid chairs altogether. Does it say anything about hammocks? Because I love a nice hammock. Can I work in a hammock? Oh, I love a hammock too. Yeah, no, it doesn't say anything about hammocks. And I suspect that considering that you don't use any muscles at all to lounge in a hammock, uh, you're not going to get away with that. As if the new scientist socially distanced office isn't going to be weird enough. You guys are all going to be sitting on the floor. (laughs) Me and hammocks just dictating dictating my copy into a a voice activated machine. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week. It's our celebration of newsworthy organisms. What is it this week, Rowan? This week it's the bison. It's the largest surviving land animal in Europe and America. Um, I usually think of bison as as a quintessentially American animal, but uh, there is a European species. And of course, you know, you can see it in the cave paintings, those cave paintings, the Chauvet Cave in France and Altamira in Spain. Um, It went extinct in the wild in Europe, but has been reintroduced from captive animals. Adam, you've been reporting on this. Yes, I'm I'm a bit upset. I've got a bit of a thing for the European bison. Uh, Their their numbers went down to around 50 individuals in the early 20th century. But since then, it's been one of those real conservation success stories. We've had reintroductions across, across continental Europe, from the Netherlands to Romania, 
and we've seen their numbers swell to more than 5,000. And now it looks like they're going to be coming to the UK. So did the UK used to have bison or was that when we were, you know, connected to the mainland by land bridges? So we don't we don't know is the short answer, but we, we think maybe not actually European bison. I mean, we have found their bones on Dogger Bank. That's the big sandy bank between the North Sea that was once part of this big fertile plain connecting the UK to mainland Europe and is now where they're planning to stick a lot of wind turbines. Mm. Um, but the um, but the species does have there is there are roots here. The species does have genetic roots. There was some DNA analysis the other a few years ago, and um, from that it turned out that they'd been um, that they emerged European bison emerged as a hybrid from breeding between aurochs and the steppe bison, which is now extinct, but did live in the UK. Okay, so now they are going to be introduced to the UK, though. Yes, so now we're going to get some of these massive grazers. Um, they're going to come hopefully sort of around February-ish in 2022, uh, and we should get about four, a herd of about four to start with, um, probably come from the Netherlands. They haven't decided exactly where they'll bring them in from yet. And it's going to be in a controlled area of a nature reserve, which is uh, just outside Canterbury. Um, and what's the plan? Do we see how it goes and expand, maybe expand the scheme? Because, you know, we know that bison are really good um, engineers of the landscape, don't we? So are they expecting to see like some ecological changes as a result of having them around? Yeah, so the, the idea is that yeah, there really are these sort of ecosystem engineers. You know, they, they basically, because they're so big and because, you know, they're, they're just in size and weight, they break up the soil they create open spaces in woodland and that opens up some spaces for other animals and plants to thrive. So they really do sort of change the landscape. I mean, I went, you know, if you went to a few years ago to Romania and, and sort of saw this firsthand, it's really interesting. Um, and, and the idea is in the UK, they're going to, you know, this small project to start with, they're going to take look at all the data, monitor it very closely, see how it goes. And then the idea is that, Hopefully, it will be replicated elsewhere in the country later. Well, it's a worthy addition to the life form of the week roster. Next up, we've got a synthetic biology project that is a potential piece of adaptation we need to do in the face of both climate change and a growing population. Yeah, so just setting aside that small matter of climate change for a minute... Our food requirements alone are quite challenging. Uh, In 30 years, there'll be a predicted 10 billion people on the planet, up from the 7.8 billion that we have now. And we're going to need to produce about 50% more food because of the way our consumption is changing. Yeah, and it's going to be hard enough anyway to produce enough food because global warming will massively cut the yield of many of our crops. Right. So the solution we're going to talk about today is the idea to radically engineer our crop plants to make them more efficient. And, you know, we've kind of been doing this for thousands of years, of course, with farming and breeding plants, but we've not been able to make really radical changes. What sorts of radical changes are we talking about here? (laughs) Right. So this is about the very basis of photosynthesis. Um, As you know, this is the process by which plants use sunlight to convert carbon dioxide and water into sugars, which they then use to build and grow. Um, And it's an evolutionary innovation that arose over two billion years ago, but it's weirdly, surprisingly inefficient. Okay, so can we improve on evolution there? Yeah, well, so there's two forms of photosynthesis called C3 and C4. The C3 form is used by about 90% of plants, including wheat and rice and soybean and the those major crops. But the problem is that the molecule that's used to fix 
carbon dioxide basically it's a bit rubbish it's called rubisco and about 20 percent of the time it mistakenly picks up oxygen to connect to the co2 molecule instead of the carbon containing molecule it's supposed to pick up so it means the efficiency of the photosynthetic process is really bad i find it surprising that natural selection didn't fix that already yeah you'd think so but then rubisco evolved three billion more than three billion years ago and at that time Earth's atmosphere was very rich in CO2 and almost free of oxygen. So there was there was no selection pressure for Rubisco to have to discriminate against oxygen. So most plants got stuck with this inefficient process. OK, so something tells me the answer here lies in C4 plants. Yes. So some plants did evolve a new method of getting CO2 by capturing it in special cells in the leaf. So basically, it, they, these plants have found a way to increase CO2 in their cells, increase the concentration, and so that when it's exposed to rubisco, there's less chance of that molecule by by accident grabbing oxygen. Right, and this makes C4 plants much more efficient. Yeah, so, you know, only 4% of plant species are C4, but they're responsible for about 23% of the whole biomass produced in Earth's soils. So plants like maize and sugarcane are C4, and so are lots of the pasture grasses that we grow for animals to eat. So is the idea that we engineer C3 plants to become more C4? Yeah, Um, uh, this is a massive task because it's not just about tweaking a few genes in C3 plants. You have to re-sculpt the whole leaf structure as well, which means 20 or 30 new genes need to be be added to rice, say. Uh, They want to do rice as this is the staple food of, of half of the world population. I saw one of the scientists on this project saying it was the biggest synthetic biology project around. Yeah, so so synthetic biology, this is about using genetic engineering to design new kinds of organisms. It's one of the biggest projects around, but uh, you know, also there's a there's a great one that I've been following about building a a totally synthetic form of yeast. Okay, but where are we with rice because that's such an important crop for feeding the world. Yeah, so we talk about this in the magazine this week. Uh, We've got a proto-C4 form of rice. Uh, The scientists think it will be ready for field trials by 2030. Even if that works, their own, in a warming world, we're going to have loads of other challenges in agriculture, aren't we? Such as, for example, plants that need to be more tolerant of drought, right? Yeah, um, and and they're already on that as well. So we, they want to try and engineer our way out of that as well. Um, there are other, there's another form of photosynthesis called crassulation acid metabolism, CAM. And these plants have a trick that makes them much less water needy than other plants. So the idea then is that we engineer crops with this form too. Um, so it's all very cool and in- innovative and exciting. But of course, it's, it's not, Adam, it's not the answer to climate change, is it? No, if climate change is never one thing, it's always we always have to do it all. So it's not adaptation is not going to be enough. We're going to need lots of mitigation and lots of emission cuts as well. And what's the tequila link here? Just uh, asking for a friend. <laughs> um, well, yeah, tequila is made from the agave plant. Uh, this is the spiky succulent plant that you know you might have seen in Mexico, and this uses that CAM photosynthesis. And we talk about this as well in the mag, but. Um, one thing that just popped out to me is that there's legislation around the production of tequila that's like that around champagne, uh, only being champagne if it comes from that region in France. So tequila can only be called tequila if it's made from a particular species of, of agave called agave tequiliana. And agave is also used to produce biofuel, um, which, if done right, can be a sort of lower carbon way to make fuel. 
yeah, that's right. Um, we, we're going to go into this in the mag as well. Uh, there are lots of trials showing that agave is an efficient way to make biofuel, much more so than maize or sugarcane. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Adam, and thanks for your hosting duties, Kat. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. Yes, go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter POD20 at checkout for your discount. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family and spread the word. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Until next time, bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.